Hi, this is Michael from The Intersection. Now, for each of our episodes, we'll be following up the first segment with an interview with an expert on the topic. Our special guest is Kay Dreyfus, an historian and musicologist based in Melbourne. Kay Dreyfus wrote the 2013 book Silence and Secrets, The Weintraub Syncopators in Australia. In my case, the first I heard of this amazing story was when I came across this book. I started our interview by asking Kay how she had first come across the story. In the year 2000, that tells you how far back my interest goes, there was a film shown at the Jewish Film Festival. It was a German-made documentary about the Weintraub syncopators. And I knew a little bit about the Weintraubs because I was interested in Weimar culture, but they were sort of peripheral because they weren't, they were reproductive artists. They were performers. They were not creators. So they were sort of there on the sidelines. They played in the movie The Blue Angel and they played with Friedrich Hollander. And so there were ways in which I picked up their name, but I didn't know much about them. So I went to see this film and the opening shots were of the Sydney Harbour with the Opera House and the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And then there was a shot of Bondi Beach. And I poked the friend that I'd gone with and said, what do the Weintraubs have to do with the Sydney Harbour Bridge? And as the, as the film unfolded, it, of course, told me that in 1937 the Weintraubs had come to Australia and the thrust of the film was that Australia destroyed the Weintraubs. So this made me, of course, very curious and that's where my interest started. So going back 1934, the band leave Berlin shortly after the Nazi takeover and they start this extraordinary world tour which a couple of years later ends up in Australia. On one sense, they were certainly refugees from the persecution of the Nazi era, but on the other hand, they were a touring bunch of musicians, successful at what they did. Do you have a sense of how they saw themselves during that period? I think when the Nazi regime came into power in Germany, they were already well established as a touring band. And my recollection is that they were on tour in Holland at the time and they just decided not to go back. And they decided not to go back because their success was stuff that they could secure engagements in an ongoing way. So the shape of their tour was always dictated by where they could go to next. So they went to Russia and then they went to Japan and then they went to Shanghai and then they came to Australia. And the plan was that they should then go on into Southeast Asia. But that didn't happen, not because of the war. It just didn't happen. They couldn't get the gigs or whatever it was. And their manager, their German manager, left. And after a rather rocky start in Australia, they secured this first-class engagement at Prince's Restaurant in Sydney so there was no reason for them to want to leave at that stage. I think they never thought of themselves as refugees, and I don't even think they thought of themselves just as touring musicians, which suggests to me sort of itinerant musicians on the road. No, they were celebrities. They were world-class celebrities. They were described in the 1920s as the best small band in in Europe at the time and in Australia, they were certainly heralded as the best small band in Australia. They were outstandingly good musicians. So I think they had a very fine opinion of their own celebrity. And that's an amazing story that this tour just kept going. There was no base really to return to and start the next leg of the tour. The tour, as you say, was really predicated on where the next round of gigs That's were right. coming from. They went they went from gig to gig. Yes, they yep. did. It was 
cleverly done. I mean, they had a manager who worked ahead, and and so that was it. Was all it wasn't ramshackle. It was very systematic. They were very strategic. They made some strange decisions, but they were very strategic in the way they operated. Just out of curiosity, what do you think were some of the strange decisions they uh, made there? Look, one of the episodes that I didn't write about in my book because it took place in New Zealand, they went off to New Zealand and they engaged a manager there who actually turned out to be a criminal. He ended up in jail, and that always seemed to me to be a rather strange decision. They they are not the first or the last band to have done that. (laughs) No, no. Bands are so hard to keep together anyway, let alone one that was going through the, well, the incredible touring and everything that this band was going through. What's your sense of them as people as to how they actually stuck together through all of these circumstances? I'd have to speculate on that, but if I if I can take up part of your question, but not not what kept them together. I mean there were many changes of personnel in the in the Berlin days. There were changes of personnel. But when they went on the road on that big tour, obviously changes of personnel became more difficult. So the band did kind of consolidate into a group that went across Russia, went to Japan, and then came to Australia. But what the people were like, I think there are two ways of looking at that. I think there's their public persona as a band. And the first impression I get, because there's lots of evidence about that, there are film clips and recordings and newspaper interviews, there's heaps of descriptions of them as a band. The first thing I take away from that is that they were first-class musicians, absolutely first-class. They were versatile. Many of them could play several different instruments. So there's no questioning their skill as musicians. And their presentation was comedic. They clowned on stage. That was part of their their gig. They they mm-hmm. entertained by clowning. And I think they probably clowned off stage too, not always with the best results. But underneath that clowning, there is a very, very serious musical discipline. And I find that really interesting. You know, their their ensemble, their 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 gift for playing together is, you know, above reproach. It's fantastic. They were very, very serious musicians who earned their living by clowning. But when you get to the individual personalities, I've thought a bit about this over the last days. And I think all I can give you are my impressions based on the traces that individuals might have left in the documents because I never met any of them. I met, sort of met, Manny Fisher, but by the time I visited him in his home in Sydney, he he was seriously unwell. He'd had a major stroke, so he couldn't speak anymore and he was in a wheelchair, so I can't really claim to have got any impression of what he was like, except that he was very tall and a handsome man. Um, and he died soon after I met him. But I have these impressions which I've gleaned from descriptions of incidents in the documents or letters that people might have written, but I can't help thinking that if I actually met them, I might get a surprise. You know, how well can you know someone if you only know them from these traces that they leave? When the band arrive in Australia, they come up against the Musicians' Union. In a previous episode of this program, we looked at 1928 and the Sonny Clay Plantation Orchestra Tour, mm-hmm. where likewise, same thing happened, different circumstances, obviously, but the Musicians' Union of Australia, very, very anti, frankly, any foreign bands at that time. 
And on the one hand, it might be able to be looked at as a labour issue to protect their members. But on the other hand, it seems that race really was a factor on it. Sonny Clay, I think race is definitely a factor. But I think with the Weintraub's, yes. I mean, that's one of the big questions that I ask myself in my book. The Weintraub's were Jewish. But to what extent was the policy decisions that were directed against them, to what extent were they driven by anti-Semitism? I would say not. And that's not to say that individuals may not have had anti-Jewish sentiments. We know that there were anti-Jewish sentiments at large in the population at the time. But I do not think that the decisions, for the most part, that were made about them were driven by anti-Semitism. I don't. So I think it's a little bit different from Sonny Clay in that regard. I think the man who was the secretary of the Musicians' Union, he was the secretary of the New South Wales District and then later the president, and he was in office for a very, very long time. I think I first picked up his name in about 1916 and he died in office in 1951, a long time. Mm. He had attitudes which it seems to me were shaped by two things, probably xenophobia, as you say, and certainly protectionism to a very high degree. And it was shaped by the Great Depression. You have to you have to remember that in 1928-29, as sound was introduced into the cinemas, there was huge unemployment in the Australian music industry, in the music industry worldwide, with the coming of sound. Because a lot of musicians up to that time had made their living playing in the pits of the movie theatres. So then on top of that came the Great Depression. So his attitudes in the 1930s were shaped by huge unemployment and the Great Depression. So he was highly protectionist. But at the same time, I would have to say he had a thing about the Weintraubs. There's no doubt. I think it got right up his nose that these this group of musicians who applied for membership of the union but did not get it, but in spite of that, got one of the top jobs in Sydney and he couldn't get rid of them. He really tried. He wrote to everyone he could think of and said they have no right to have this job and they got the job and they kept it for quite a significant period of time until two of them, three of the members were interned. And then even after that, the other members who were not interned kept on at Prince's. So the Musicians' Union did not succeed in preventing the Weintraubs from securing and keeping a high-level engagement. Okay. At the same time, when um, when Stefan Weintraub and Horsecraft were released from internment, they got a job at a posh cafe in Sydney called Romano's as musicians, and Kitson launched a merciless campaign to get them out of that job. And he, he, in a way, succeeded, and he not only drove them out of that job, but he drove them out of the profession. They did not attempt to work as professional musicians again after that. So I think he did have a, a personal vendetta against them. And you know, of course, one of the musicians, John Kay, took him on. He took him on in the Industrial Commission of New South Wales in 1944 wartime, and he challenged Kitson's right to deny him membership of the union. And John Kay won. And that meant that from that time onwards, the Musicians' Union in New South Wales had to soften their policy of denying membership to any foreign musician. And then, of course, after the war, that became a more 
general policy uh, um, for the federal federal union too. So, so that's a very interesting uh, conflict there between the vine traps and the union. That's interesting. I ha- I actually was unaware that after their internment that um, Stephen Weintraub had actually briefly continued as a musician in Sydney. So it's interesting. But he hit he hit two lines of opposition. One was from Kitson, who hated Stephen Weintraub personally, I would say, and the second one was from J.C. Bendrote, who was the manager of Prince's, and he did not want to see Weintraub, setting, who had been so successful at Prince's, setting up in a rival establishment in competition. Right. So Bendrote, Kitson and Truth newspaper in a way colluded in um, attacking Weintraub because Weintraub was older than the other musicians in the band and he had served as a soldier in the First World War. Now, this is wartime. You always have to remember with everything that happened to the Weintraubs, this was wartime. This was a situation of duress for the government, for the population at large. And these three people, Bendroid Kitson and the manager of Truth magazine, they launched this public campaign denouncing Weintraub as a former German soldier who had no right to be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he did. He did succeed. They lasted, I think, for about seven months at Romano's and then they just left. I think yeah. Stefan Weintraub was pretty much destroyed by his Australian experience, I would have to say. I, I feel he never understood why the things that happened to him had happened, and he never really recovered. I mean, of course, he went on to live out the rest of his life, but I think he was he was deeply affected by those experiences. You write about this very mysterious character called William Buchan, who walks into Paddington Police Station, right near the Eastside Studios, in fact, and lodges the first complaint about the Weintraub members. Do you have any sense of who this man actually was? He, he's a very curious character. I think there are two parts to your question. Who who was he and why did he do what he did? Now, I, I can't speak about his motivations, except that, again, it's quite clear that this group of musicians got right up his nose. Now, he may have known them in Russia, he may have known them in Shanghai, and he may have known them in Potts Point, where he was neighbours with some of them. And clearly, he found them very annoying. But why he made this denunciation, I don't know. Denunciations were not uncommon during wartime. And for the most part, the police did look at them quite carefully and they were often dismissed. If they were, you know, vexatious complaints, they were not taken forward. So the other thing that's very interesting to me about the Buchan situation is why did it stick in the way that it did? And I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, the Australian government took him at face value. He presented as a British, he was British, they were not, they were German and Polish and whatever, they were enemy aliens. He was British and he claimed to have served in the First World War, although they never looked at his service record very closely. But if you look at him a bit more closely, which I was able to do with the assistance of his son, who I must say was incredibly generous at admitting that not everything his father did was entirely admirable. And this man, Buchan, his family was based in Shanghai and his business was something to do with importing things from the Soviet Union or perhaps he was acting as an agency for a Soviet enterprise that was exporting to Southeast Asia. So he had connections to Russia, 
But in Shanghai, his family was very shady. They were very shady. They were in a fast set and they were, the Shanghai police did not share the Australian police's good opinion of William Buchan. They did not. He, he and his brother were implicated in shady financial dealings. His sister was, you know, may or may not have been a spy, you know, so on and so forth. But the Australians took him on face value. Now, why did his denunciation stick? I think part of the reason was that because the events he alleged happened in Russia, there was no way that the police could investigate them. They could never prove them or disprove them. And they did try, but there was no legation in Moscow at that time. Um, they, They couldn't handle them in a way. And they did try after the war when the musicians applied for naturalization, they did try and look at those allegations to try and sort it out. But but they never did. So there you go. I think he was a very, very shady character. Mm. His motivations remain unclear to me. Always on first reading the book, it's struck me thinking, well, how was this man actually in the USSR and in Shanghai? Although you have now answered that. It was a yeah. family business. Yeah. But there are many, there are many inconsistencies. The thing about it is he never speaks with his own voice in the file. He's only ever reported by the people he spoke to. So as you say, he went to the police station and made his report. But all you have is the policeman's version of his Mm. report. And as these reports travel from file to file, which they do, this denunciation just travels across the files. And it's a bit like Chinese whispers. It keeps changing a little bit and, and you know, little little facts get changed. So it's very hard to actually work out what exactly he said. But I think he got it half right and half wrong. There was trouble in Russia. The mother of one of the musicians was arrested for illicit trading. She was either trading in money or she was trading in black market trading in goods and she was arrested and there was a trial, the mother of one of the musicians. The musicians were not there at the time. He says, Buchan says that they attended the trial. This is not true. They couldn't have. They were in Japan at the time. But the brother, uh, the, the other son of this mother did attend the trial. So maybe Buchan heard about this and he thought that that musician was part of the vine traps. So, you know, there are things that are half true. There are things that are quite wrong. And and um, the, the Australian police could never sort it out. Stefan Weintraub and other band members are interned whilst they're in Sydney. One of the parts of the book I found incredible was your really vivid description of what the internment camps were like, in that there were actual Nazi Party members, Australian Nazi Party members, that they could do things like decorate the prison with the swastika, that they could celebrate Hitler's birthday. I found that amazing, let alone how intimidating that was for the Jewish musicians who had been interned there as well. Why did the Australian authorities allow that to happen in an Australian camp? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that the Weintraubs were interned very early. So these were the very early days of internment. I don't know that they were Australian Nazis. I always thought that they were probably Germans too, German nationals oh, too. sure. I, I mean I Australian-based, yeah. I, I guess. And I think um, I read that the Australian officials liked the way that the Germans kept order within the camp. And at that time, in the very early days, it was not segregated internment. 
Now, I had a friend who was interned at Tadura, the same as Stefan Weintraub, but later she was she was sent from Singapore after Pearl Harbor. So she came to internment later. She came with her husband and her child, and they were in a family camp. It was segregated internment by that time. It was only Jewish people together, and she was in a family camp. But I think the Weintraub and Graf were just unlucky that they were interned very early before, in a way, the Australians got it sorted, you would have to right. say. And I think they just didn't want trouble in the camp. And if, let's assume that they were Germans interned, which they would have been in those very early days, then the Australians wouldn't have understood what was, if it was being done in German, which I presume it was, they may not have understood. So, so yes, it does seem rather extraordinary, but I think I think it's to be uh, attributed to the fact that it was early days. But at the same time, I think the the internment regime was relatively benign. You know, people were not mistreated. There were visitors who went there every month, fortnight, whenever it was, like legal people who visited the camp and listened to the the internees' complaints. And I was highly entertained when I read those files. The Italians complained that they couldn't have wine with their meals. So I really liked that. But the visitors would go and listen to the complaints. So there was overview of what was happening in the in the camps. But I think the problem was in those early days that it was not segregated. Yeah. Right. Finally, Kay, Stefan Weintraub, Manny Fisher, re- remained in Australia. I'm assuming maybe one or two other members. They would have had every right to be anti-Australia, frankly, due to the treatment they'd received. How do you feel they lived the rest of their lives in Australia, knowing what had happened to their professional careers when they were here? Oh, I don't think about it like that at all. Uh, First of all, I think Manny Fisher had a very, very successful career after um, he left Prince's. I can't give you the details, but he was a very successful businessman and also kept on as a musician. I think he had a very successful life in Australia. I think Weintraub lived out the rest of his life. He he was not highly successful. I think he worked as a mechanic in, in a garage somewhere. He played music for the Little Vienna Theatre. You know, he kept on as an amateur musician. I think the critical thing is they were not dead. Mm. I mean, if they had stayed in Europe, they would have been dead. And that's a fairly large thing. Australia gave them, in the end, a safe refuge and a life, and I think I think that's not to be underestimated. It isn't. Well, that's a very very excellent point, Hey Dreyfus. Thank you so much for talking for us tonight. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the intersection. My name is Michael Fisher. Production by Rob Margenberg. We'd like to give special thanks to Eastside Radio eighty nine point seven FM, and don't forget to follow the intersection on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Just search The Intersection underscore Eastside FM. The Intersection was recorded on Gadigal land. Sovereignty never ceded.